Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Tuesday, February 1st, 2011, and this is the Future of Education, and our guest today is David Wiley. David, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that you weren't planning on being in California when you set the interview up. You stepped away from a conference, and we appreciate it. Future of Education is sponsored in part by Illuminate and Learn Central. The project that I work on is a free uh, social network for educators that has Illuminate baked in. We hope you'll come to learncentral.org and play around with it. Coming up on the Future of Education on Thursday, Karen Hume talks about her new book, Tuned Out. We'll take a week break while I'm at a conference, and then February 15th, David Perkins on Making Learning Whole, Kevin Kelly on What Technology Wants, then coming up after that, John Seeley Brown, Steve Mueller, uh, Michael Horn comes back with their newest white paper on online learning, uh, North Carolina School Connectivity, and you can see lots more fun coming up. Added today, for those of you who are paying attention, uh, the panel on passion-based education on May 10th is new. If you've missed the show, they are all recorded there at futureofeducation.com. Yesterday was our session with Karen Cater. Uh, that was lots of fun. And before then, again, Michael Horn, Gary Steger, Barnett Berry, Yang Zhao, Will Richardson. Yang Zhao, we did talk about Tiger Mom. So if you're interested in that topic, it's a fun one to listen to. Uh, again, they're all up in full, illuminate recorded form, and an MP3 for a podcast. Uh, if you are interested in either the Q or ISTE conferences, we hope that you will consider participating in some of our free EduBlogger events. Uh, the Q conference is in March. There's a, an EduBlogger con the day before. That's the 16th from 4 to 8 p.m. It is free. It's an unconference for anybody interested in social media, web 2.0, and education. Uh, in Philadelphia, that uh, unconference is a full day affair the Saturday before the show. Uh, thanks to both those organizations for sponsoring and allowing us to do that. Both shows also have Bloggers Cafes, and they have the unplugged programs or versions where anybody there can present in the presentation area we have, and we also do a live stream of those presentations. That's qunplugged.com or istunplugged.com. If this is your first time at Illuminate, it is a participative environment. Look at the bottom of your participant window for a clapping hand, a smiley face, a confused look, or a thumb down. That hand with the green up arrow, the larger icon, is how you'd raise your hand to take the microphone to ask David a question. Uh, feel free to do so. Uh, the best thing to do at this time, if you're interested in using the mic later, is to go up to Tools Audio, run the audio setup wizard just to make sure your microphone is working correctly. I do recommend for easy viewing of the chat that everybody go up to View Layouts and put yourself in the wide layout. It makes it much easier to see the chat. Sue is asking if we have sound. I hope uh, Sue begins to hear us. Uh, Peggy, if you wouldn't mind, just let her know she can run that uh, audio setup wizard. That would be great. So we'd like to know where you're participating from. It is earlier in the day than normal for us. So I'm not quite sure who we'll have here, but if you um, look at the map to the left, there's a wand with a red star at the end. You can click on that and then click on where you're located. I think at this time zone, we're a little bit early for Australia, although New Zealand's there. What time is it in New Zealand? It's got to be pretty early. And that may be Ireland. Feel free to do a shout out in the chat. It's fun to know the time and the temperature. If you're in the Midwest, we're thinking about you today. I guess East Coast as well. 
sure looks like Australia is getting hit again. We sure appreciate your participating wherever you're located. And if you're listening to the recording, thanks for doing that. David, I've wanted to have this conversation with you for a long time. Yeah, I was trying to remember how long ago it was we first talked about it. Uh, we've, I think we met in person at BYU maybe three years ago. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's about right. And I'm trying to remember, you maybe were not at BYU at the time, or had you just moved there? I probably would have just moved there. I moved al almost three years ago. Well, I think it might be kind of fun for, for us to have a, get an idea of your work and um, what's brought you to the, the kinds of things that you're doing now. Can you give us the, the three-minute bio? Well, the three-minute bio, well, the, probably the most important thing to know about me is that I'm from West Virginia originally. And uh, my redneck heritage, which I'm really proud of, uh, d does color the way that I think about a lot of these problems and um, experiences I had growing up uh, particularly in school, uh, particularly in the elementary school I attended, kind of impacted me later on as I began to realize um, the potential of the Internet, particularly in uh, distributing resources very widely and at essentially no cost to large groups of people. Um, thinking back to the kinds of resources that were or weren't available to us at uh, Davis Creek Elementary um, really, I think, gave me a maybe not a unique, but, but give me a perspective that made me feel very passionately about uh, using this technology to try to reach out to as many people uh, as I could. And so I think uh, between uh, that experience growing up in West Virginia and also uh, being a devout Mormon, um, I, I think I, I have a sense of this work that I do sort of as a moral imperative. And, uh, and that makes it easy to get out of bed in the morning and be excited about and uh, think about it while I'm doing the dishes and things like that. So okay, I want to ask the question of religion kind of later in the show, but we talked about, we've talked about it uh, in a couple of events here, one about uh, the Catholic Diocese which did a very good job of promoting these new tools, and then I did interview BYU-Idaho about their learning model, um, and I'm curious as to the degree to which um, cultural conformity can allow certain kinds of um, acceptance of things. Uh, but we'll save that. And, and for those who, who are familiar with the show will also know that uh, I'm also a member of the Mormon Church. And so um, that'll be kind of fun for us to explore in a short way at the very end. So tell me a little bit about uh, Flat World Knowledge, the Open High School of Utah, and the Open Ed Conference. <laughs> okay. How they tie together and what your active role is for each of those. Well, maybe in reverse order then. Uh, the Open Ed Conference is a conference that we hold in the fall each year. It's the last week of October this year in Park City, Utah. And uh, we lovingly refer to that conference as kind of the annual family reunion of uh, people who work in the open education space. So that would include anyone uh, from projects that are formal open education projects like institutional open courseware kinds of projects through more collaborative or, collaborative or distributed uh, projects like folks from Wiki Educator that have attended in the past, 
um, and really anybody interested in these broader issues related to how this idea of openness and uh, at a very high conceptual level, the, the ideas of open source um, can be appropriately moved into uh, non-software kinds of venues, and particularly you know education, and how we can use those levers to to drive access and affordability and opportunity uh, forward to people. This will be the eighth year, I believe, that uh, that we've had the conference. It's been in Utah a number of times before, and then two years ago in Vancouver, last year in Barcelona, and this year in Park City at the Canyons Resort. Oh, that's really tough. Uh, Nobody's going to want to go to Park City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So actually, that, so uh, when is that conference? Is it in November? It's the last. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the last week of October. October. So it should be pretty weather. Will will there be snow that time? Well, in theory, it just so happens that the, the timing that we normally hold the conference at is theoretically a little too late for golf, but theoretically a little too early for skiing. Um, and but I imagine whenever we have whenever we have the conference in Utah, we've had a tradition of breaking early one day and heading out for a hike and hiking in the mountains. And I expect that we'll do that again this year. But you'll probably want to wear a fleece or something when we do. Um, but the location is going to be great. The Canyons Resort. Is fabulous. Uh, the off-season rate is like $109 um, a night, and, it, and and if you've been to the canyons, you know what an incredible steal that's going to be. So the program's going to be great, and the venue's great, and it, this is something that we've enjoyed doing for a long time. So so I'm the I guess I'm the founder of the conference. I organized it the first time. Uh, we used to host it through the Center for Open and Sustainable Learning at Utah State, and then I've just kind of continued doing it at, at now after my move to BYU. So what kind of participation do you get from K-12 in that conference? It's growing. Um, early on, well, eight, eight years ago, on the open ed side, there was almost no participation um, in OER from people in the K-12 space. It was really a higher ed thing, and, and really mostly a research one uh, institution kind of uh, dominated. But now you can see uh, not only higher ed and, and the R1s, but also a, a huge uh, involvement from the community colleges. And that's starting to work its way down into um, K-12, particularly in the high schools um, right now, which maybe is a segue into the, the answering the second part of your question about the Open High School of Utah. Before we go there, can, um, I, can I stay on the conference for just one second? Please. So it feels a little bit like we've been operating in parallel worlds because we've been running an open source lab um, and an open, it's basically an open education environment. It existed for about five years and at Q for about the same amount of time. I was the open technologist director for COSIN. Um, and it, it, are there things that we could be doing in our K-12 community to kind of bridge that gap with open ed that, that we might even start brainstorming about tonight? Yeah, that's a really good idea because, it, on the one hand, you know there there aren't that many schools that have made institutional commitments to uh, open education or the idea of open ed educational resources. But um, I may call uh, has a survey that they've done that the the formal results will be out for, I think, pretty soon here. But the the results, as I understand them, are that the vast majority of the schools that belong to that organization, which is the uh, the virtual school organization, uh, the vast majority of them 
have heard of and use OERs in their classrooms according to the survey uh, results. Um, so there's obviously some traction being found in the K-12 space there, and I'm not really sure how to plug, uh, you know, what we've been doing with open ed into that. So it would be nice to brainstorm a little bit about how we can get the, uh, the, the there's such a nice marriage between the upper level of high school, the community college, and the lower end of the four-year program where so much of that content really can be similar and could be shared, and particularly when you think about uh, early college kinds of opportunities. Um, I, I think there's a big opportunity for collaboration and synergy in that space, and we just don't seem to be achieving right now. Well, so let's work on it. We'll, we'll, you and I can take that offline, but there's a really great, passionate crowd around this in K-12, and uh, maybe there's a way to engage them in open ed. So let's talk a little bit about the open high school. What's going on there? Well, as far as my role is concerned, uh, I, I'm the founder of the school. A couple of years ago, I got together a group of people, and uh, we went through the chartering process. Open high school is a charter school, so it's a public school uh, in Utah, and it's fully online. And uh, it wasn't always possible to charter online schools. And so essentially about the time that the state legislature uh, approved the creation of such a beast, uh, we got involved with getting one set up and started. Um, and uh, well, let's see. I, I guess the most important things to know about it are that it's online. It's fully online. It's a public school, um, so the state pays you know, for the students who attend. So in, in answer to Patty's question in the chat here, um, not everyone can be a student because um, the state of Utah will only pay uh, for you know, the students who live in the state of Utah to attend the school. And uh, the way charters work in Utah, our capacity is capped by the legislature each year. So this year, for example, we were only allowed to well, we can admit as many students as we like, but the legislature will only send funding for 250. Um, so the growth is kind of uh, capped as far as that's concerned. Um, I'm sorry, now I've started paying attention to questions in the chat, and I'm afraid I've lost your question, Steve. No, well, my question was just for you to give us a little bit of an overview. So you're the founder. You um, want to give us a sense of kind of uh, what you started to do and why, why it's so unique? Oh, right. Thank you. So we're really trying to be committed to a, a high-level principle of continuous quality improvement. And that manifests itself uh, in, in two specific ways in the model um, on which the school operates. So the first is that in our charter documentation, in, in the charter application that was approved by the state to, in creating the school, we committed to only using open educational resources. Um, in other words, you know, curriculum materials that uh, have an open license, like a Creative Commons license, or things that are in the public domain, for example. And we didn't do that in order to show some kind of religious zeal that we thought licenses were more important uh, than the quality of a, of a resource. But in terms of being able to engage in ongoing continuous quality improvement, no curriculum, uh, no material is perfect, and they can all bear a little improving. And how exactly to improve a material uh, or a resource is something that emerges through use of that 
resource. And we wanted to make sure that as we used online curriculum and as we found that those uh, materials were or weren't working or were working only to a limited degree, we wanted to guarantee to ourselves the ability to make improvements to those curriculum materials so that uh, you know, mid-semester kind of course corrections could benefit the students who are in there now. Um, but also that students, the next batch of students coming up will be benefited in a way that the curriculum will always be getting better. Um, and if we had licensed materials from a commercial provider, um, particularly since the majority of commercial providers just kind of give you a username and password and let you come use the materials on their system in kind of a rental or a lease kind of way, um, there wouldn't really have been the opportunity for us to engage in continuous quality improvement around the curriculum. And this idea of continuous quality improvement is really one of the key things that we're uh, dedicated to. So that's partly enabled by our commitment to open, ed open educational resources on the curriculum side. Um, and then it's partly enabled uh, by a culture that we're trying to create um, around really caring about data and looking at data and using data in uh, very day-to-day -day kinds of ways, not waiting until the end of the semester and looking backwards at uh, what you might jokingly call autopsy data. Uh, you know, kind of how did this go wrong? Why did it go wrong? Well, you know, now we know, but it's too late to do anything about it. To really get teachers involved in the process of uh, being in whatever data are available to them through the learning management system, really being in that uh, every day and trying to make kind of moment-to-moment -moment decisions about what to do based on the data that they see in that system. Um, so that, that leads me into maybe a brief discussion of our teaching model. Uh, as an online school, uh, all the course materials, the curriculum, uh, are loaded into a learning management system. We're using the Moodle system this year. Um, and students interact with that, you know, with the content there, the videos, the interactive pieces, the assessments online. And essentially, teachers spend their day looking in the learning management system, looking at the, the data that are available to them there, and trying to decide based on that data which of the students could benefit most from some one-on-one -on -one time with them. And so the teachers spend their day essentially working as one-on-one -on -one tutors, reaching out to an individual student based on some data they see in the system that maybe suggests to them that the student uh, hasn't been engaged recently and they're starting to fall behind, or that the student struggled with a section on the last test that they took, and there's some uh, conceptual issues that need to be dealt with. And so the teachers will either get on the phone or will get on Skype uh, for a video chat or a text-based chat or maybe uh, send a text from their phone to a student, whatever way they can get the student to pick up and respond. And so instead of you know, giving the same biology lecture uh, six times in a day, all that, that kind of core generic lecture is all packed into the system. And on days when what's in the system is good enough for you and you manage to get through it and understand it all and uh, perform in an acceptable way, then you might not hear from the teacher because uh, she might be spending all of her time reaching out to the students who are really struggling. So it's sort of like a blended model even though it's all online. Um, but uh, I call this strategic tutoring. You know, we can't afford to provide a one-on-one -on -one tutor for every student in the school. But the goal is to provide a one-on-one -on -one tutor for every student in the school only when they need to be tutored and only to help them with what they need to be helped about, not to reteach them everything that they were capable of learning through the learning management system, but let teacher evaluation of data drive proactive outreach on the part of the teacher to kind of engage students, uh, sometimes hopefully before they even realize that they 
uh, need help and before they get frustrated waiting for it to come. This is part of a larger story. I, I watched several videos of you speaking. You know, the joy of the web here is being able to do that kind of research. And you know, this yeah. idea that you, you seem in a very sort of soft-spoken, thoughtful way to say, you know, if we're not really rethinking what we're doing as educational institutions, we're making a huge mistake. This is a really big moment in time, and the tendency may be to um, justify or defend current traditions, but there's an opportunity here to really dramatically change what takes place. And part of that was, um, I think you called it, or we're referring to um, bookifying. Right? So in some ways, you've put bookifying into effect at the school. Uh, this idea of flipping the, what takes place um, on a personal level and what takes place sort of in a recorded level. Is that, do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I, I think so, because I, I think uh, from two perspectives. Um, first is, you know, technology is really good at some things, and people are really good at some things. And there, there are some cases when technology is better than people, and vice versa. And so I think a, a principled approach to the application of technology in education really has to start by saying, what is it that the computer is better at than people are? And as, as far as, you know, uh, being able to listen to a teacher, uh, a math teacher, uh, walk through step by step through how you think through a problem and watch as they write that out and kind of model this problem solving process for you. Um, if you record that once and put it online so it's available to anyone at any time, well, now the system is going to do a better job of delivering that information for you than you can as an individual because you can't be on all the time ready to give that lecture to anyone. Um, but also, um, the computer can't form a, a relationship with a student where, uh, like a person can, where the person can express confidence in, in you and can ask about your weekend and find out what happened with your brother who was sick because uh, they knew that was going on in your life and tell you that they love you and that they know that you're capable of doing it and, and really build that sense of confidence and that relationship of care and nurturing uh, that I think is such an important part of uh, education. So we're really just trying to balance, you know, balance those two things out. The other part of that, I think, is as we have um, you know, these increasing technological capabilities, um, I think the more we're capable of doing technically, the stronger the moral imperative com becomes for us to f pause and spend the time we need to figure out how to use that technology effectively to support uh, students in the learning that we know that they're capable, capable of doing. Um, if we just stand on the shore and let all this technology kind of wash past us and look at it and say, that's too complicated, that's too hard, that's too expensive, that's too whatever, um, I'm not going to get involved in it. I think we're really, um, I think there's a moral issue there where we're not really doing for students everything that we could. And I think the vast majority of teachers really want to do everything for students that they can. So what was your involvement in secondary education before the open high school? Uh, well, I graduated from high school. <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, you know, in a very interesting that's way. about it. Well, so I, again, I, I have this little picture, this tiny little window into your life of the four or five videos that I could find to, to watch. But it feels as though you're very much interested in kind of the impact of um, openness on higher education. And so I'm kind of interested in what led you to opening uh, a high school. 
Well, I mean, I've been thinking these thoughts for a long time. I, as you mentioned, in, in the higher ed context about what the benefits are and what the benefits might be. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a PhD student several years ago uh, who was really interested in this idea of Six Sigma and lean manufacturing and, and continuous process improvement um, and applying that in an instructional context. So back in the early 2000s, I got kind of interested uh, and how we might import some of that research into education to make it better. And you know, my interest in openness in education goes back to about 98 with uh, the founding of Open Content. Um, so all this stuff had been brewing in my mind. Um, and I've been talking about it a lot, uh, particularly with the, oh, those poor, the poor students that I supervise. You know, it would listen to me drone on about this stuff. And I'm, I'm going to oversimplify here. Uh, slightly, but in essence what happened is uh, one of my PhD students walked into my office one day and said, you know, you might not be watching this uh, too closely, but the state of Utah just changed its charter laws so that you can charter a virtual school. And um, you're always talking all this stuff about the benefits of openness and how we can apply this and how we can apply that. And, you know, here's an opportunity for you to do something and maybe you ought to either take it or you ought to shut up. <laughs> So uh, that was really what convinced me, well, th that student is who made me aware of the fact that the, a virtual charter could even be approved and came in and kind of threw down the gauntlet to say, you know, instead of talking all this talk, why don't you actually get out there and do something to really bless somebody's life rather than just, uh, you know, keep sitting in the ivory tower here. Is it in some ways easier to actually put something into effect like that because the secondary school tends to be a small institution where you could have an impact versus trying to do something in higher ed? Yeah, and I had been involved with the startup of a university a couple of years before this, so not as the founder, but um, in an instructional design uh, and a curriculum and accreditation kind of role with uh, Newmont University in Salt Lake. And kind of watching that whole process unfold made me realize that I never, ever, ever wanted to try to start a university. Um, and so all the work that I'd done in terms of openness on the higher ed side had really been kind of grassrooty, uh, somewhere between grassroots and subversive. You know, how much can we get done? How can we do things within current policy frameworks without having to adjust too much? Kind of how far can we push things? Um, starting a high school was a you know a, a completely different level of uh, enterprise. Not not that it was simple by any stretch of the imagination, because myself uh, early on, and then later on, a number of other people really worked themselves into the ground, uh, you know, trying to get it launched successfully and making it a, a successful program. But nothing on the order of magnitude that that the university startup was. So in terms of being able to kind of take something fresh with its own original mission and get it started and get it up and running. Um, yeah, I, I think I think there is more flexibility, more opportunity to innovate as far as that goes in the uh, in the K twelve space. So when you talk about the moral imperative, I'm really reminded of Richard Stallman, uh, and he wrote a piece years ago about uh, open source and Boy Scouts. And and I'm not sure if it was in that particular piece, but it's sort of the do a good turn daily that open source software really represents the best of human virtue, um, and in particular said. You know, education should be leading the way here. Well, well having run the Open Source Lab at this for five years, I can tell you that education is not leading the way. So why is that? 
and you know, do you feel some sense of camaraderie with Richard? I mean, he's kind of a weird guy, but uh, you know, is, uh, is, what's, what is going on here in terms of education in this moral imperative, and what are we missing? Well, first I should say I have a huge respect for Richard. Um, obviously, he's a, he's a pioneer in so many ways. He's such a strong personality and is so incredibly committed to the principles um, that he's committed to and that he's invested kind of his life's work in. Um, although, if it came down to it, well, when it did come down to it in 1998 when I was founding the Open Content uh, Initiative and starting those first licenses, there were open source style licenses for content as opposed to licenses for software. Um, when I had to make a choice about what to call that, I came down on the on the side of open as opposed to the side of free. Um, and let me let me talk about that for a minute, because it, you are right in terms of talking about uh, Richard and the the morality that he brings to his thinking about this issue. Um, but there there's something I think also very compelling about uh, Eric Raymond and that group that talked about open source as opposed to free software. Um, and kind of the dialogue at the time, it was starting to have the tenor of at least my my reading of it, I'm sure other people would disagree, was kind of Richard saying uh, there's, there's some morality and some ethical issues around freedom that if you're not willing to participate in this idea of freedom and free software, uh, then that's some kind of ethical violation or a, a demonstration of the fact that you're not a principled person because you won't uh, start participating in this particular way of doing things. Uh, whereas Eric uh, oh, and others, Bruce Perrins and folks, tried to step back from that and say, instead of telling people they're inferior human beings if they don't adopt a particular way of thinking, why don't we argue pragmatically from the benefits upward and try to convince people that for these reasons that will lead to these concrete benefits, uh, an open approach is better than a closed or a proprietary one. Instead of trying to convince people that you know that they're immoral if they don't adopt a particular license, which I realize is really generalizing and maybe offensively generalizing Richard's position, but he but he does feel very strongly and connects it morally in that way. Having interviewed both Richard and Eric, I think you're accurate. Um, I mean, it, it was very interesting setting up the interview with Richard because he had so many concerns about not using any proprietary technology. Um, and yet again, I feel that same appreciation. You probably, you probably don't know it, but I did it a couple of years of interviews just on open source and education. And my you know, sort of conclusion after having been in this space for so many years is that typically the finances for practical concerns are a much are a significantly larger driver of any changes than the pedagogical or philosophical positions. Right. So that if you really want to have any traction with a, uh, with a school board, or with the legislature, with somebody that's going to determine a budget, or somebody in a position to set policy. Um, if you walk in with a very practical argument around uh, learning gains or around uh, budgetary savings, you're much more likely to get some traction than you are if you walk in with a philosophical argument um, about the virtue of freedom. And, and it's it's not that I don't. It's not that I disagree with Richard and that I don't believe that there's virtue there and that, that, that there is a moral issue laying at the bottom of all this. But I think it is, I think packaging really is very important. And rather than swinging all the way to one end 
uh, as Richard has on the completely free side or swinging all the way to the other end uh, on the open side. I will, in my own language, use open as opposed to free, but I like, I really do try to kind of inhabit a space in the middle um, and kind of bring what I think are the beneficial parts of both of those ways of thinking um, into the work that I do. I, I myself consider the work that I do and think about it from that ethical and kind of moral imperative perspective, but I hope I don't ever come off as preaching to other people that uh, that if they don't engage in the same kind of way, I'm judging them as being inf inferior in some way. But I'm very, I'm very free and open in talking about th those being my own motivations for engaging it and the way that I think about it personally. But I think in my discourse with others, I do try to focus on these very pragmatic issues around the benefits that come from being open. Yeah, I would say that, that uh, you do a very good job of being inviting in that way. Um, I, uh, because I get a lot of the submissions for the ISTE conference for open source. I'm always intrigued that about half of them are actually not for open source programs or projects, but are for uh, cloud-based or new technologies. So I wonder if we might not use this as an opportunity to kind of drill down on your desire to identify the pedagogical benefits of openness. Yeah, well, that is the 100000 or $100 million question. And it, it's something I'm actually trying to arrange some to take some time off this summer uh, and kind of isolate myself just to work on this particular question. Because when you hear people talk about the benefit of the benefits of open educational resources, as you listen to them talk about those benefits, you start to ask yourself, um, well, is, is that does that benefit come because that resource is open, or does it come because it's online? Or does it come because it's open, or does it come because it's digital? Or does, does that benefit come because that resource is open, or does it come because it's interactive? And they're all, there's kind of this uh, little gaggle of characteristics that all tend to run around together. And uh, as is the case in some other parts of the educational research area, we don't, there's not a lot of precision in the discourse here so that people will talk fast and loose about the benefits of OER when what they really mean are they're talking about the benefits of online education. Well, I was, um, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so just to, to one concrete example of a pedagogical benefit, um, we're doing uh, some pilot work with a couple of science teachers, high school science teachers um, around BYU right now. Uh, providing them with printed copies of uh, open source high school science textbooks to use um, kind of as the primary materials uh, as they teach their science courses this year. And so one concrete pedagogical benefit that you get, because remember we were talking about pedagogy, we we're talking about the kinds of activities, that the learning directed activities that people engage in. Um, when you, you, and you may not remember this, I had I'd forgotten this until I got back involved in this project. Um, but in high school, when a high school buys a science textbook, for example, um, that's something that they probably do every five, every seven, every ten years. They buy a single textbook, um, and then because it's so expensive, um, they hold on to it for a number of years and pass it on from student to student. And part of what they do in order to be able to use that book over and over again is they prohibit students from writing in the books at all. Um, so if you're a student that's actually following school policy, 
you're not highlighting your science textbook at all. You're not making any notes in the margin. You're not circling things or, or di drawing di diagrams off in the margin. Um, if you're treating that textbook the way you've been told to treat it, you're really trying to preserve it in a pristine condition so it can be handed on to student after student after student for that full seven or full ten years, whatever the refresh rate is. Because a book like this might cost eighty-five or a hundred dollars. Um, however, when you get around to using a textbook, so let me give uh, one of the most interesting examples from the study we're doing now. We started with the uh, the open source textbooks that have been created by the CK12 Foundation, and their chemistry textbook I think is around thirteen between thirteen and fourteen hundred pages. It's this giant. Uh, when you print it out, it's this giant uh, kind of chemistry textbook like we're all used to seeing because it has to cover every standard from every perspective that ever touches every state. Um, you know, so it'd be useful to have to put everything in there. Well, we had a, t a team of chemistry teachers sit down and work through that book and adapt it to the Utah state standards and also to what material they actually intended to teach out of the textbook as opposed to things that they're going to teach in other ways. And at the end of the summer, this textbook that had started its life at 1,300-some pages ended its life at about 240 pages. And uh, when we went to do print-on-demand with those through Lulu, we ended up paying a little over $7 a piece for the books, including shipping. So if you figure you know, $80 on a textbook every five years or $80 on a textbook every 10 years that a student's not allowed to touch or mark in or do anything with because that book has to be preserved in this pristine fashion. Now flip that over and say, well, seven bucks a year for 10 years, now that's $70 instead. We could provide a brand new chemistry textbook for every kid who would be allowed to mark in it, who would be allowed to highlight in it, who would be allowed to take notes and make annotations and draw on the margins and do the kinds of things that we all did with our textbooks at university. Um, that's a kind of activity. It's a learning-directed activity. That's a kind of pedagogical benefit that you get from material being openly licensed so that you can print it essentially just for the cost of printing, um, which a typical school, that, that's an activity that a typical student with a typical textbook cannot engage in. So that's, that's one very concrete example of a benefit, I think. So I, I tell two stories in about uh, the benefits of openness, and I am sort of re-examining them today in light of this question. Uh, one is the value to students of being able to see and modify open source programs seems to be, for me at least, sort of clearly on the pedagogical benefit side of openness, that they can actually take mm -hmm. a program, run it, modify it, and I felt very comfortable with that. The second example that I used, though, I wasn't quite sure about. I, I often talk about this language program in Texas where the upper level students create the language materials for the lower level students. And I realized, hmm, you know, that's really more about technology than it is about openness. But the openness isn't necessarily, the openness is inherent in the process, but I'm not sure it's actually driven by openness as much as it's driven by technology. Yeah, oh, I, I think that's a great point. And I, and I, I think you're right. And I think we've really done a poor job, particularly after going and adopting the open term instead of the free term, and supposedly positioning ourselves more on the side of the camp that wants to explain pragmatic benefits. I really think we haven't done a good job at all as a field of teasing apart uh, the difference that an open license makes in terms of 
the kind of pedagogical approaches that you can take compared to whether it's a proprietary piece of software or a proprietary textbook. Um, you know, what difference, it just as a quick thought experiment, you can imagine taking a textbook off a shelf, uh, ripping out the front page that has the copyright statement on it, scribbling a Creative Commons license in on the next page, and say, if it were as easy to do that, to take a book that was copyrighted and make it an open textbook, have you improved the quality of the book by doing that? And the answer is, of course, no. You haven't. You haven't changed any of the words that are written in the book. You haven't changed any of the assignments that are written in the book. But what you've done is you've created some kind of additional potential. You've kind of enlarged the activity space in which that book exists. The, You've increased the number of things that people could possibly do with the book. It doesn't mean that they will. Um, and so that's, that simple act of relicensing at the beginning actually by itself doesn't guarantee you anything. But it does increase the, the realm of possibilities for the kinds of act, learning directed activities, or in other words, the kinds of pedagogies or pedagogical activities that you could engage in. But just that fact of open licensing by itself doesn't get you anything. Um, and I, I think that's something that we ought to think about more and argue about more. And is, is that really true? And if it's not true, can we come up with a counterexample? Um, and can we really start to tease out what's the difference between a you know, technology-based benefit versus an openly licensed benefit, or an interactive one, or a digital one, or an, an online or networked one, as opposed to an open one? And where are the genesis of these benefits that we're talking about are? Um, it's, there's, there's, I'm sorry to say, myself included, there's, I, I don't know of any really good thinking in the field on this topic. Is it, is it a stretch to think of the student's use of open licensing as a means of increasing, um, of facilitating their ability to publish and increasing the exposure of the material? And if it's not, if you, if you move from the textbook towards the student use, are there ways in which you can see parallels with the, um, with the open source programming concept of riffing or modifying um, that makes sense from the student side? Um, yeah, I mean, I, in terms of the kinds of assignments that you could give, that you couldn't give in alternative settings, there's really a wide range of exciting kinds of things that you could ask them to do. Um, one kind of technical question that's interesting uh, is, and this is something that Creative Commons has been exploring with some of their partner public schools, is um, there's some weird interactions in the, in the law between this idea, for example, that as soon as you fix a creative work in a tangible form, it's copyrighted to the full extent possible under the law. Um, but if that work is created by a minor, uh, and that minor may not be actually legally capable of entering into certain kinds of contracts or licensing agreements, is it possible for a 15-year-old who does some work to license their own work under a Creative Commons license? Um, and it becomes even more complicated in a school context. Um, you know, are the answers to a question a derivative work of the question? Um, there have been some arguments, some legal arguments, I think particularly in mathematics, that the answers really are in a strong sense derivative works of the problems. And if those problems are copyrighted and belong to the teacher 
even though you work it out yourself and you arrive at the answer yourself. Well, maybe in some strict sense, that's a derivative work. And so there's all kinds of wackiness and confusion around here. Um, however, if you take the, for better or worse, kind of common educator approach of just kind of ignoring all those issues because they're too complicated and they too often get in the way of the kinds of things we want to do, then yes. You know, I, I think there are, are all sorts of interesting things uh, that we could do if we were able to work on that assumption that these materials we're dealing with are licensed in some open way. I'm afraid I rambled there and lost your no, question. No, no, you didn't. And this is really interesting. And I'm looking at the clock just with terrible regret that, uh, that an hour becomes such a short amount of time. We're going to move to Q&A. If you have a question, I've tried to capture some from the chat. You can also raise your hand. That's the hand with the green up arrow. Um, before we move to the Q&A, I do want to ask you the question about BYU and religion. Um, so I did the interview with BYU-Idaho and just really think they've done some terrific work there in terms of what they're doing. And I've also heard reports of um, Catholic Diocese doing really good work and, and felt that in part that was because of common culture. That at a place like BYU-Idaho there's, there's sort of this common consent about accepting direction from the top and so a, a move like a very dramatic move in, in teaching um, is, is more readily received, say, by the faculty. Um, but uh, I'm interested in kind of drilling a little bit deeper than that and getting a sense from you of what you sort of feel your uh, mission is related to this work and how it relates to your religious perspective. Oh, wow, in, in, you know, in just five minutes or less, right? Um, oh, well, I can give you less time. How about two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> um, gracious. Um, well, certainly for me it starts with this sense of uh, just doing good and generosity and um, how, sort of how you interact with those people. And kind of a feeling that our current uh, culture, especially our economic culture, is not necessarily, although we've inherited it, not necessarily one that we would say, uh, if we thought about it, really agrees with those principles. Well, uh, yeah, I, I guess, uh, you know, I don't want to be get too uh, overtly religious or too technically religious in my answer, but I, th I think when you have a sense that, uh, well, okay, l let me not project onto anyone else. Let me just talk about myself. I have the sense that I'm extremely blessed and fortunate in just about every single aspect of my life. And uh, one of the ways I've been blessed is I've had the opportunity to travel a lot to Nepal, to Thailand, to China, to South Africa, to some uh, to some places that are uh, really, really having kind of a hard time in a variety of ways. And when you look at how blessed you are and you realize that uh, it's probably not because of uh, any great worthiness of your own that you're blessed more than uh, anyone else is, I think there are a number of ways that, that you can respond to that. But, and for me, that turns into a kind of humility and a feeling of indebtedness that um, that I've been placed in a position where I can contribute and I've been placed in a position where there's an opportunity for me to do and to be helpful and to be useful. And those feelings hopefully, you know, lead me to engage in activities by which I make myself useful uh, to other people who, who have a need of people being useful for them and, and giving them a hand. Um, and, I, and I think really, 
I guess if, if, if I had to say kind of in a single phrase what my goal was or what I felt like my mission was, it really is simply to be useful um, to somebody else. And I, I think that reflects a kind of a, at least my understanding of it, a, a basic kind of Christian view of the world, that we all have an obligation to take care of each other, that we're all part of one family, and that, the, you know, today I'm in a position to be helpful and useful, so I probably should because, well, not because I expect anything in return, but also at some point in the future I may be in a position where I need help, and I hope that somebody would do the same thing for me because, you know, as far as those of us that are right here, there's only us to take care of each other. And if God's work's going to get done, it's not going to be because he's going to show up and walk around and do it. It's going to be because he's going to act through us to do that. So I, re I really think we have that obligation to each other to be useful and to be helpful. Okay, so three minutes. I think you did a good job. Um, I've captured a couple of questions. If I missed a question, I hope that you will put it in the chat again. Kent asked two, um, uh, and I'm very interested in sort of drilling down here. And if, I don't know if Kent's still in the room, but if you are, Kent, uh, you can certainly add to these. Kent says, are any of the proprietary sources clearly superior to the open sources? Well, that was a great question for you. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that you can find a case in which that's true. Uh, I, I don't. I don't doubt that there are examples that we could find where we could lay down all the proprietary options and all the openly licensed options and find uh, today that the proprietary option is better according to some measure of quality. Of course, we'd have a big argument about what quality means. Um, but, but I'm sure that regardless of what measure you came up with, that we could find ourselves in situations where that was true. Yeah. Okay, so David's follow-up question, again, David, thank you. These are great questions. Is open sourcing anti-capitalistic? Uh, um, I've actually written about that at some length on my blog just this week. Um, and it turns out that as I tried to write about it in a very common sense kind of way, a, a couple of people who don't think about these things in common sense kinds of ways, but think about them in, in very technical kinds of ways, have really engaged around ideas of capitalism and socialism and Marxian kind of critiques um, that really took that conversation a lot further than I was capable of taking it or really meant for it to go. Um, however, let me give one example. And this is the example I tried to give in the blog post where I think openness is 100% compatible with this idea of capitalism, or at least with the idea of, with the idea of the market. Um, when you go into a pizza shop and you sit down and you pay for a pizza, it, you have an expectation that you know within a reasonable period of time there's going to be a pizza shop that you're going to get to eat. And, and I think one of the fundamental assumptions that underlies some common sense understanding of the market, I'm not speaking as an economist and with a very technical definition of what the term market means, but I think this whole thing kind of works because we have an expectation that when we buy one, we get one. Um, and so if that's kind of the foundation of the market and the way that works, um, then I think, for example, when you as a taxpayer send a lot of money to Washington and that money is used to buy a variety of uh, research articles through NIH-funded research and it's used to buy uh, educational products that are created through NSF or Department of Ed-funded research, um, and all of us together have bought that uh, educational game, then I don't think it's anti-capitalist at all for us to all expect to have access to that game that we've all paid for, or to have access to be able to read that research article that we've all paid for. Uh, because when you buy one, you should get one. 
so when public money is turned around and handed to a provider or handed to a researcher, handed to an institution in order to create some deliverable, I think it's absolutely the case that that deliverable ought to be licensed under an open license so that each of us have access to it because we're the ones who paid for it. And if you buy one, you should get one. That seems to be a very basic kind of market kind of principle that I think most of us would agree to. So I think that there's at least one instance in which the idea of openness and the sort of capitalism are very, very compatible. And then, of course, you have other answers around uh, you know, various business models like the Red Hat model or the Flat World Knowledge model where those two things uh, coexist very happily. I've always been intrigued by sort of the different perceptions of capitalism. For me, it's, uh, it carries a, a very heavy sense of the ability to choose. But in capitalism, we choose what we want to do, where we want to put our resources. But I think there's often a cultural connotation of selfish interest in capitalism. And so in some uh -huh. ways, it depends on how you define what free market or capitalism is. Allison asks, how do the available collaborative technologies impact the opportunities for creating OER? Oh, gracious. Well, this has really become a problem for us, I think, because if you, if you have one or two or three people with any creativity at all and any kind of technical knowledge, um, we, we've really, we're getting to the point where there's essentially no limit. Uh, to what we could do if if you assume you know a kind of developed world circumstance where there's at least electricity and there's probably a, you know a wireless connection and some of these other things um, if you can get to the internet and you're creative at all uh, particularly in the context of these near collaborative tools um, it, it, it's hard to think I mean I would challenge anyone in this group you know I'd, I'd give you 14 days to come up with something to just dream something up that from a technical perspective is simply not possible. Um, obviously, the har much harder than the technology is always the policy and uh, the social issues around the deployment and the, the use and people's acceptance of the technology. But as far as what we're capable of doing, um, we, we really are coming into a, into a place where there's basically no limit on what we're capable of. And it's becoming more and more a matter of what our institutional will uh, you know, has the stomach to try to take on, or what our political or other institutions have the, you know, the risk tolerance to try to take on. Because I, we, we could be educating the world. We could right now. And the reasons we're not doing it are not technical reasons. They're political reasons. Um, and so in my own work, you know, like, for example, with creating the high school. The, the high school is an online high school, so there's obviously a huge uh, technical piece behind that. But the whole chartering process and getting it set up and getting established and getting teachers in there and, and what it is, a huge political part of that as well. And, and I think that, uh, um, at least for me, I don't want to, again, I don't want to project onto other people, but as I think about myself and my own work, I, I'd have a hard time respecting myself if all I ever did was technical work and never tried to connect that to uh, the necessary kind of policy work and implementation work that would take those things that are fun to think about uh, in your nice office and comfortable chair and really turn them into something that actually blesses somebody's life. So we've got time maybe for one or two more questions. If, if I've missed a question in the chat, please push it again, or you can raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow. Um, I'm particularly interested in MIT OpenCourseWare. 
and you surprised me and enlightened me in one of the videos I watched by calling it Open 1.0. Do you want to talk about what that means? Um, well, it, it, it means a number of things. Um, but part of that 1.0 is around the model of how it's supported, um, you know, where it's essentially supported by grants and, and donations, and it's not connected in a way to a real business model that can sustain it over the long term. And by that I mean it's not connected to something that, uh, well, let, let me say it the other way. So in establishing the business model that they've established in terms of how they support that program, I don't think they've set an example that the rest of the institutions in the world can follow successfully. So it may be sustainable for a single institution, but it's not it doesn't in any way define kind of a family of solutions that other schools can can adopt very broadly. I don't believe so. Um, so that's part of what I mean by the 1.0. And I think the 2.0 kinds of models are models that are more connected to uh, they're models that have revenue generation sort of built into them so that those activities can sustain themselves over the long term. But the second part of what I mean by that is that it's very much um, it's very much a read-only kind of site as opposed to being a read-write kind of site, even though, um, and I've got a student working on a, a dissertation on this right now, even though from a licensing perspective all the materials are open, um, from a technical perspective there's a large swath of materials on that site that you couldn't edit if you wanted to, um, particularly with the dependence on the PDF. And now there are a variety of practical reasons in terms of cost and expediency and, and whatever. Uh, that drove them to make the choices that they made. And I'm not being critical of them, but you know, as the very first project out of the gate, by definition, that's a 1.0 model. And 10 years later, if we haven't learned some things from it about some ways that it could be done better and some ways that we can improve on it, I think we're a pretty sorry field. Um, and so this idea of uh, alms, alms analysis uh, that I've blogged about a little bit before, and we've got one paper out about it, um, is this idea of taking uh, being able to look at an open educational resource, not from a licensing perspective, but from a technical perspective and from a couple of very specific technical perspectives to understand the degree to which, yes, it's licensed openly, but what kinds of choices have the creators made technically that either enable you or get in your way of exercising the rights that they supposedly have given you uh, in the license. And so I, I think that's something that we've got to be paying more attention to as well. But anyway, it's, it's not a critique of MIT. It's just to say the first guy out of the gate is 1.0. And, and ten, you know, they're having the 10-year anniversary uh, kind of event. In, I think it's in May this year. 10 years later, we really ought to be better at it now than, uh, than we were 10 years ago. What was the role that came up in your gaming uh, class where somebody invented a role for a person who would go around and liberate free content from technical constraints? <laughs> yes, the rogue. The rogue. I couldn't remember that. Okay, well, we are out of time. That was really, really fun. Thank you so much for, for making the time. I've wanted to do this for a long time, and I really appreciate that there's much more that we could have talked about that we didn't. But um, again, davidwiley.org is a place to go to read the blog. Uh, thanks to you, David, for coming on tonight. Well, thanks for having me, Steve. This this has been great. We should have done it sooner. Oh, I really appreciate it. I know you've got to get back to your conference. Thanks to Eliminate and Learn Central. Uh, please do look at one of the upcoming events, and hopefully we'll find something that will make uh, your day a little bit better. Have a great night. Take care. Goodbye, David.
See you later.